sermon around here somewhere. Hang on. I did come ready to preach. I tell you, it, it does me some good to be in, uh, to have been in, at Whitney. The, uh, again, I never felt so small. Um, there are some trees there, the sequoias, that are giants. I mean, giants. I stood up next to them, and I'm a pretty big guy. You know, I've had some people call me Big Jim. Don't you call me Big Jim, but I have people call me Big Jim. And there are some trees there that are just, I mean, make me so small feeling. And, and after being in the hill country and you're around all the trees out here, which aren't much for trees, but there's still some pretty good-sized trees out here. It's, it's amazing to be up against stuff that makes you feel small all the time. Your cliff faces or rocks. So I, I am glad to be back. Uh, it was a good time of reflection. I was reminded of what I'm like seeking uh, from the Lord uh, in these moments. One of the things that uh, my friend Mike and Eric, they're both saved individuals, and one of the things that they wanted to do is they wanted to collect uh, like three rocks, and we knew we were going to go through Death Valley National Park, and, and so the idea is, hey, we're going to collect these rocks. If there's things in our life we want to cast out. We're going to write those on the rocks. We're going to give those to the Lord. We're going to put them in Death Valley and put them to death, you know, and it was this great symbolic thing. But like I told him, it's like, I'm not like, I don't have like a lot of those things. Like as much as anything, I don't, I don't look at necessarily what I need to always take out as much as what needs to come in. Cause the more stuff that comes in, it weeds itself out. And so for me, I was like, there's really three things that I long for. Number one is revival. But if I had to really narrow it down to that, what I think will bring revival in me or the thing that maybe drives revival in me is two things, purity and holiness. Purity and, and holiness. And uh, I, I do, I do want to continually weed out things in my heart that don't need to be there. Uh, but I think pu- the more I long for purity and the more I long for holiness, that's, it's going to happen. Uh, because I know that I'm going to focus and try to be as close to Jesus as I can be. Um, and it's true, I want to be so fixed on Jesus that the cares of this world seem so small in the face of eternity. Um, I, I get asked sometimes, uh, I, I don't know, I, I've, I've, I've uh, been able to detach myself from things at times uh, emotionally. And, and the, what has happened is that the more I fix myself on Jesus the more the cares of this world there seem so small. Um, but there's something in me that I, I want this eternal flame to always be going. Uh, this revival thing and this purity and holiness, I want it to be the, the uh, forget what they call the thing that, that blows on the coals, uh, but that's what I want it to be. Yeah, yeah, a billows. I, I, I want that. I want purity and holiness to be the billows that fire up the flames of revival in me. And, and, and at the end of the day, uh, nothing has changed from the very beginning of when we started this place. Uh, I want to be intimate with Jesus. That's what I'm striving for. And if I'm making anybody that looks like me, appears like me, or follows after me, my hope is that the drive to be more like Jesus is in you as well, to be intimate with him, to know him especially different. You know, I know you. I, I know everybody in this room, but not like I know my wife. But I know Jesus like I know my wife. Can you say that? I hope so. That is our mission. Our individual mandate and mission here. We are going to advance the gospel, yes, by returning to the Lord. By 
through our intimacy with Jesus, through becoming the image of Christ, we will bear his image to the world and bring him glory. Not us, him glory through intimacy. And so this is the goal I want to move towards. This is the goal that we've, from the day one, this is what I've been unapologetic about. This is what I'm about. Intimacy with Christ, being, being together with him, being solid with him, being more than just friends, right? Being family with Jesus, right? So much so I'm willing to do things that maybe others aren't willing to do, say things others aren't willing to say, go places where others aren't willing to go because I'm driven, I'm compelled through my intimacy with Christ to do whatever he asked me to do. I do believe that God is placing people around us every day. I think every day it changes too. But God is placing people around us every day to whom we are to witness and influence the gospel to. And the only way we really do it correctly is when we bear the image of Christ to them. That's the way it is. And this is the very heart of what I'm seeking here at this church, a deeper intimacy where, trans, where the transformed life, singular, transformed life, singular, equates to transform lives, plural. Right? When we are so connected with Christ that we're changed, right? That when others meet us because they, we, they see the image of Jesus, their lives begin to be changed. Right? Through intimacy, that's how babies are born. Through intimacy is how newborns in the kingdom are born as well. Nothing wrong with adoption. Nothing wrong with that from one church to the next. There's nothing wrong with those things. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just trying to say that I covet newborns. Not converts. Converts sometimes never become newborns. They just say words and we applaud them for their words. And we're going to talk about that today too. But isn't that the life of the apostles? They were with Christ. They, the more things they did, they became like Christ. Isn't that what we see in the book of Acts? If you remember, that's where the Pharisees go. We can tell what? That you've been with Jesus. You've been with Jesus. You talk like him. You're teaching his word. You're saying the things that he says. You're acting like he does. You're giving grace to people that we would never lay hold of or touch. You are going to places that we would never be. You are acting and behaving and like Jesus. Can you imagine them? They were probably like, thank you. No, no, we meant it as an insult. You know, I mean, like, and they were like, yes. You know, uh, I always remember the moment in where Peter and the Pharisees, and Peter's like, you murdered Jesus. He was the son of God. And they're like, man, you, you're trying to put his blood on our hands. And, I, and if I was like Peter right then, I was like, man, you should have really capitalized on that, Peter. Like, you're, you're, you know what? I sure am. I want his blood over all of you. That's the only thing that's ever going to cleanse you. I was like, oh, man, that preacher should have came out in them. They should have really used that, you know? That could have been a good platform right there, but that wasn't what happened, but it was cool anyway. So, but the gospel does. The gospel changes us. It transforms us into something new. We should be becoming the image of Jesus Christ, right? We're not what we used to be. We're different. We're a new creation. Uh, I saw a, a tree. I, I was going to get a picture of it this morning and put it up there, but I saw this tree and uh, while I was out there, and we were, uh, I think, just kind of walking the trail the day before just to kind of see where the trailhead starts. And there's these beautiful sequoias. If you hadn't seen a sequoia, you need to look it up. Uh, I've got some pictures I'll show you. I'm like this big, and the sequoia's like this big in the picture. And it, it is giant, and, and it makes you feel so small. But it also makes you realize like how magnificent this thing is, right? They grow straight up. They look like pine trees. They're a, kind of a pine tree somewhat. And, and um, the neat thing about this one particular tree is that it was growing out the side of the mountain. And immediately, I'm the preacher, so I'm already seeing like a sermon. Ooh, that's a sermon, right? And it's growing out the side, right? But where's the sun? Above it, right? 
So where do plants grow? Straight up. And it literally makes a 90-degree turn and goes straight up. And I was like, that tree is my life. I started out this way, and then I met the sun. Right? Immediately. See the sermon already? Like, it preached already by itself. Didn't even show you the picture, and you already know exactly what I'm talking about. You're like, me too, brother. That's me too. I'm a bent tree. Right? That, that is. That's right, right? Because that's, as I was like, man, that's good. I'm going to keep that picture. And one of these days, I'm going to use that. And, and, and so I was looking at that. And I was like, that is how it is. That's the transformed life. No, no. Now, that's the visual. I can see that. I can see that I was growing out. Like, at the end, some people are like, well, no, I'm, I'm alive, right? I'm, I'm producing... I'm producing branches. I have fruit. I'm, I'm, I'm a lot. But no, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're still going in the same direction. You're not, you haven't been transformed yet. Your life hadn't been turned, so to speak. And, and you hadn't been changed into this new creation, this, this thing. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be like Christ. We're supposed to bear his image. Now, I'm going to introduce you to a young man. We're going to watch his video here in just a second. But this young man that I'm going to show you today, his name is Noah Schultz. And... Uh, uh, I, I came to find out about him a little bit. Noah was locked up for seven and a half years on an attempted murder charge uh, uh, at 17 years old. And, uh, but something changed in him while he was in there. Now, his full story is actually covered in, in an award-winning documentary that's called From Prison to Purpose. And now Noah kind of does his own thing. But right here in the small clip that I'm going to show you, he's still in prison and he's kind of discussing. And one of the things we're not, he's not going to talk about Christianity, but it's, and maybe he feels like he couldn't in the video, but at least he wore his uh, young life shirt in it so that, you know, like there's obviously some gospel uh, part to plan it. But let's, let's hear from Noah this morning. Inspiring social entrepreneur. I'll tell people I'm going to change the world. And I'll say that in a youthful way, like, oh, I'm going to change the world. I mean that when I say that. I have 15 months left until I officially go home. I'm just preparing myself to make the most positive impact possible. (laughs) 
So I, I, I'm not going to use or going to get into too much of Noah's background or kind of use him for the example of how to be. What I just wanted you to see really is how drastic the transformation he underwent. I mean, he went from, did you see the guy before? Like, I've seen that kid. I think he was in Granite Shoals. Like, I've seen that kid, right? And then all of a sudden, when, it, when he looks like at the front, it's hard for me to picture that guy is this kid over here, this little scrawny kid that looks like a gangbanger guy, right? It just, it's just it's so, a, such a dramatic transformation. He went from being this teenage drug user, drug dealer at times, a gang member, to someone who now speaks against such things, and he utilized the system to propel himself. He completely turned away from his previous way of living. He made a 180-degree turn. It's obvious, right? I mean, there's no doubt about like, wow, that's an amazing story. If there's no Jesus involved, whatever, it's still amazing the fact that he went from one life, completely turned it around, and is going another direction, right? I mean, um, amazing story. You could see it in his looks, correct? Like, I mean, he he didn't... The way he held himself, the way his posture was, right? By the clothes that he wore. You could see it in his attitude, right? You could hear the way he talked compared to obviously not the guy who went and beat up some kid who robbed him for drugs, right? You could see it in his actions. You could see what he's doing today. So for Noah, the adversity he faced of being locked up in prison was a catalyst to repentance. It was a catalyst from turning his life around, right? Repentance means what? To turn our life, right? To admit our wrongdoing, know that we're wrong. He obviously did that. Now, whether it's repentance to the Lord, I'm not going to get into that, but he definitely acknowledged that the way he was was wrong, right? And then propelled himself to turn back and go a different direction. And in that, he found change. And this leads us right where we're going to be this morning in Colossians 3. Colossians 3. I'm going to read to you the first 11 verses. If you've got your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, please get one. Come see me if you need one. I will hook you up and get you a Bible. Yes, a digital Bible is good, but I just went to the mountains where there was no service. Can't believe it, but there was none. A literal Bible would be nice to have, you know? I promise you, if you get yourself a physical Bible, it will not go out of service. Ever. Ever. You can read it anywhere. You can be in Death Valley, and it will still work. It's amazing, right? Technology today, technology today. All right, Colossians 3, verse 1. Here we go. Since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Let me repeat that. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life. And your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the world, you will share in all his glory. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still a part of this world, but now... It's the time to get rid of anger and rage and malicious behavior and slander and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you've stripped off your old sinful nature, and it's all wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters. And he lives in all of us. 
And he lives in all of us. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. Let's pray real quick. Father, as we begin to uh, search out through your word, God, the truth that you've placed within it, God, for us to not just uh, listen to for the morning, God, but actually to implement within our life, to remind ourselves so that we uh, are strong once we step foot into the world. You've called us not to, not to be excluded from the world, but to step into it, God. Uh, Father, may we see the power of your word to protect us as we go into this world that you've created, God, full of sin, full of iniquity, God. And may it uphold us and keep us, Lord, so that we might bear your image to this fallen world and that this fallen world will have to say one day that you are Lord and King and God. Amen. So in giving the Colossians something to focus on, Paul reminds them to be more heavenly minded. I love it. He reminds us that there's so much more to look forward to rather than keeping our eyes on what's dying and decaying. Like, I know you love your stuff, but guess what? Your stuff ain't going to heaven. I love my guitars. I love my guns. I love hunting. I love the mountains. I love all this. Guess what? It ain't going to matter. At the end of the day, it's me and Jesus. This whole thing's dying and decaying. Guess what? This body, as soon as it came out the womb, was dying and decaying. As soon as it came out, it's the way it is, right? All that is around us is going to rot away, but that which is within you namely Christ, and all that he promises are the things that you can hope for and dream for, right? So no matter how bad it gets, no matter how rough it may seem in your life, no matter what is happening in your life, there is always hope. Why? Because there is something that doesn't rot away. There is something that's not going to decay. There is a relationship that you're going to foster while you are here that is going to help you when you go to another place that lasts eternity, Right? So these investments you make into people who are saved, we call it the church, the community of the, the saints, right? This, this investment we make into each other when we love each other, when we share with each other, that's an eternal investment. It's not going to rot away. It's going to be there. Why? Because Christ is in you and Christ is in me and that thing is eternal and it's going to last forever. These are the things that we can hope on. These are the things that we can look forward to. This is kingdom theology. Just straight, standard kingdom theology. This is what we are called to do and what mature Christianity really looks like. Being heavenly minded more than earthly minded, right? We should strive to walk in it. However, let's be clear. There is no striving towards this unless you have genuinely given your heart to Christ. All of it. I'm guilty sometimes of some of it. I give some of my life to Christ, some, but it, it has to be all. And I bring this up because Paul in this writing is talking to people that he believes are saved. The assumption is that they've recognized their sin, right? <clears throat> it's been revealed to them by the Holy Spirit, and it's caused them to repent and give their lives now to Christ. The catalyst of events has now changed them. Uh, uh, remember the story of the man whom Jesus cast out all the demons, right? Remember that this man was crazy? Remember how he ran up to him? Buck naked? Yeah, that's a funny just to say that phrase, right? He came up to him like that, and, and he, that's like, by the way, that's scary crazy, right? Yeah, uh-huh. Let a naked man run up to you in the street. What's weird is like he was the town naked guy, right? <laughs> like nobody ever thought, hmm, we should probably get that dude some clothes. Maybe just force him down and put some clothes on him. Like, like nobody thought that. Like, that's just the naked guy. He's just part of our town, right? It's like Austin's keep people weird guy that they got, right? This is our town keep, keep whatever weird guy, right? And he's their naked man, right? 
However, he meets Jesus, right? And, and his life is like forever changed. Mark 5, 15, don't turn there. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legions of demons, the naked man who's been crazy our whole life. They saw him. It says he was sitting there fully clothed and perfectly sane. And the irony is it says, and they were all afraid. What do you do when everything you know, it's the same all the time? I can take it to the bank that this guy's going to be crazy. I can take it to the bank that this place is always going to be here. I can take it to the bank that my friends are always going to live down at the end of the street. All of a sudden, stuff is changing, and it's not comfortable anymore. The crazies are starting to become sane. This whole town's changing. And the change was so drastic, right? So dramatic that... They didn't know how to process it. They didn't know how to process it. It was visibly, listen, visibly evident. Meeting Jesus changes you. Changes you. By the way, sometimes I have to remind myself of this truth. It's easy to focus on empty tables. But let's be honest. Sometimes when the crazy become the same, it intimidates others. That sometimes church is scary, not because of cliques and all the mean things that people love to say about church. Sometimes it's scary just because we see change so drastic and so great, we can't fathom it. I mean, look at normal people saw a crazy man. They should have been rejoicing for this man, right? They can't. They can't. They'd rather Jesus leave. We know the story, right? They asked Jesus to leave. Leave, man. You're changing too much of us here, right? How intimidating is the church? The church comes into a town and says, listen. Everything you're doing is wrong. I need you to change. That's what it does. That's the ugly truth. Welcome to honest talk. Church confronts you. No church is popular. I'm always scared of the church that's popular. What are you telling your people? Are you telling them how bad they are? Are you calling them out on their sin? You know, these are things you have to ask. Listen, when, when, when Jesus did good things, it scared people off. Right? Meaning Jesus changed you. Receiving a second chance, uh, the result of God's grace, is so liberating. It's so liberating. You find yourself so free, it changes you. Uh, If it doesn't, then you should be questioning the authenticity of your salvation. Seriously, because everybody else is, by the way, in the church. Oh, that person's saved. Are you sure? Because I see how they post on Facebook. This person's saved. Are you sure? Because I see how they conduct business. You know what's nothing worse? is knowing you have somebody who's so faithful in your church, by the way, and like, like as a pastor, this is the way it works, right? Where you have, somebody, you have people who are so faithful in your church, but the first time you're like, oh, yeah. Uh, 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 for instance, when I was at First Assembly, there were people, uh, not there now, so I'm not talking about anybody's there now, but like uh, there were people at times where I would have a discussion, like, oh, do you know so-and-so? I'm like, yeah, I know so-and-so. They're like, yeah, man, I'm, like, that guy's not a good guy. I'm like, he's always been great to me. Like, I don't, well, man, how they conduct businesses, a little shady, and there's nothing worse than see people who were so saved in the church, but outside of the church, not known for any salvation at all. I'm going to tell you, authenticity of salvation is important. I think some people just repeat some words rather than truly repent, which means that they never really acknowledge their current direction, and it's hard to change your direction when you don't think you're on the wrong track. Well, I'm pretty good, so there's not much I have to change. You do not know the gospel. The gospel says there's no good in you. That your heart, 
uh, cannot be changed. It's like leopard. What does he say? Jeremiah says, your heart is uh, deceitfully wicked, like the spots of a leopard. It's always been that way. How can a leopard change its spots? Well, it says it can. Jesus can. Jesus comes in and physically changes you, right? Remember Noah's testimony there? He acknowledged what he did. He acknowledged what he was like. And even the consequences of his decisions, right? And then allowed the grace he received, which was the second chance, which was prison, which offered him a second chance, believe it or not, to change his life. Noah transformed into a a different person, right? He put away the old in favor of what? The new, right? Now, for us, we focus on things of heaven versus focusing on the things of earth. Our hope now lies in what? In what's above, not what's below. My hope isn't that retirement's going to cover me and that everything's going to be comfortable for me. My hope is that I make heaven. <laughs> that's my hope. My hope is that that's where I'm going to be. Not only that, you know the things that, that, that are my hope? I could care less about my retirement if my kids don't go to heaven with me. I could care less about my retirement if, if the people I love and the people I've come to call my friends and my family don't make it to heaven also. This life is a shadow. When I leave this thing, I have a whole eternity somewhere else. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it. If you hadn't read the last books of Narnia, like the last like three pages of the last book of Narnia, where he says, this is all just the foreword. Chapter one is where it begins. This is the foreword. This thing, is a, this thing means nothing. Your life is yet to happen. It's about to happen. And do you believe that? Listen, how much you cling on to the things here versus here are the difference of how much you believe it. How can, how can we be so rejoicing and so happy when things can be so hard or so tough? I know how disappointing the building is, but how can I have hope despite those things? Because the contractors aren't the final say in anything, just like the doctor's not the final say of the medical field. God is. Don't you know that God is manipulating them in this time right now to, to do what? To teach us patience, to teach us to wait on him, to teach us to trust on him, right? To teach us that his timing is perfect, Right? You know what he's also doing in the process? He's got to teach us how to love these people who we feel at times may not be doing us the the work we want them to do, right? Because how we witness to them in this process, how we love them through this also says a lot. What are we, all of a sudden we turn into shrewd businessmen as soon as it goes bad for us? No, we love them. We We see the providence of God working in all of this. Why? Because our things are not focused on that which is earthly. It's focused on that which is above. There's no root for pride. No root for pride in the changed or transformed life. None. Verse 7 reveals that where your grace for those living immorally should be. Paul says, you used to do these things when your life was still a part of this world. So before you get all high and mighty, yeah, we're Christians and we're saved and we're the new trans, we're the transformed and we're the changed people of God. Well, listen, Paul said, yeah, you used to do these things when you were still part of this world. So before you get too prideful here, remember, you used to be one of them. All right? There's no call to judge those that are still living earthly. That isn't your position. All right. This is allows us to love people who are still in the church, maybe still focused on earthly things rather than heavenly things. Remember, there was a time where you did that too. If that's not something you're struggling with now, that doesn't mean you get to judge those that are. Amen. Good job, Pastor. Hurt my shoulder there, Pat. It's so hard. There's no call, right? This isn't your position. You were once there too, where Christ had to transform you through the power of grace. If anything, this is a call to humility. 
due to the fact that if not for the grace of Christ in your own life, you'd still be the same person. Grace changes us, right? It's a constant reminder that we're not better, but rather we have had our hearts open and our eyes washed by the blood of the Lamb. We see things now not because all of a sudden we we got great water here in Marble Falls. No. There's a spiritual water that runs over us that changes us. Right? We see, we hear, and are aware because Christ has saved us, not because we're smarter or better. When we master this, it's then that we can live in love towards all human beings. Even the ones that don't bring our food within 30 minutes. Yeah, I've seen some people lose their Jesus over that. Like, I only got Jesus when my stomach is full. Man, do not fast, because I don't want you to come to church when you're fasting like that either. Good night. I tell you, the first thing we, me and Joyce said when we first got here is Marble Falls taught us that. Like, if I want to go talk to you, and it's, I just want to spend more time talking than eating, we're going to Chili's. You ain't going to get your food for an hour. But you know what? Because I accept that as the way it is now, right? What do I do? I love them in there. I love on them, man. Love my waitress. I have no, I, I have no thing about that. I know where I'm going. I, I, I'm never going to complain. I'm never going to, that's never going to happen. Why? Man, they, life is hard enough for everybody. Last thing you need to do is have some customer complain at you. Well, why'd you come here? I mean, come on, it's chilly. It's been this, I've been here 10 years. It's the same. It's the same. There's no point in it, right? Patience. Our love shows to all people, right? Spurgeon used to say, he that deserves nothing should be content with anything. Let me say it again. This is worth writing down. If you don't use this phrase almost like weekly in your life, you're not paying attention. He that deserves nothing, it's you, should be content with anything. All right? <clears throat> Why don't I get upset when I'm paying for this food or this con? Why don't I get upset with these things more? Why? Because first of all, I know where my place is. I know technically I deserve nothing. Why? Because I'm a dark sinner. A deep dark within my heart is sin has tried to make roots and tried to drive in. But Jesus has ripped all that stuff out through grace. I've opened my heart to him. Even though I don't deserve salvation, he gives it to me. But because I know my place where I don't deserve it, right? It allows me to be loving and happy in all these other areas, right? Because I understand my place that I deserve nothing so that anything I get is blessing, right? Anything I get, it's blessing. It's blessing. All my friends are the blessing of God, right? Well, you only have so many friends. Praise God. That's the blessing of God. Everybody tries to compare things. Everybody tries to, like even that guy was saying it, right? Even Noah was saying it, man, I'm just keeping my eyes focused on me. It's not about comparing myself life to anybody else. It's about focusing on what God's calling me, right? Focus. There's just something to seeing the fullness of what you deserve in contrast with what God offers you. You deserve death. You deserve hell, right? I get irritated when I hear people, God sends some people to hell. Like, God doesn't send anybody to hell. You send yourself to hell. You walk straight forward into it. Nobody's got to send you there. You're like, yes, party all the way. You don't even think about it, right? Nobody has to send a single human being to hell. They all go there. And then all of a sudden you get on this flip side, right? And then there's salvation, right? Salvation is recognizing that I'm always headed here until God intervened. I didn't even know that that's where I headed. It looked like total club stuff, man. It was like a rave music going on. It looked really fun. Right? But it was a trap. They're falling off the cliff as soon as they walk in the door. And we just can't see anything else past the darkness, right? So it all looks fun to us. It's a nice parade, right? All the way up to the end. And so we don't think anything. Well, everybody else is going that way. Uh-huh. And they're all going to die. 
perish forever until God intervenes. Right? Our life, our life is changing. That revelation is overpowering to the changing of my nature and being. And while I live in constant reminder of this, it changes the way I view life. How I view life is different now. Right? This is the kingdom-minded part. I become kingdom-minded all of a sudden. I become heavenly. Like I've had people accuse me at times, man, can't keep being the prophet all the time. You can't, you can't always be about God. Why not? Show me in the Bible where I'm not supposed to all be about God. I mean, who are the people who are the heroes of the Bible? Have you not read Elijah's story? Nobody here wants to be like Elijah. I know we, listen, most people don't sit there and just dwell on the lonely part. What they dwell on is Elijah called fire from God. Elijah stopped the rain. Who did, nobody wants to be a Samuel, right? Where all the words you say and prophesy come to pass. Nobody wants that. I mean, like, like, look at all the heroes. Who doesn't want to be like David? David is awesome. I mean, he writes music. Can you see him with the harp? And he's like, man, I'm just jamming out. And then you know what? I'm putting my harp down, grab my sword, go kill some Philistines. And it's all God. God is like, okay with all of it. And you, and you see these guys. Like, these are the guys that God puts this book together. Like, imitate these guys, right? They're following after me. Imitate these guys. Right? That's what he's trying to say. Like, this, this is the way I want to live my life. So and how were they? They lived godly. How is that? They lived holy and purity. David longed for that. Go read the Psalms. He longed for purity and holiness within his own heart. He said, thy word have I hidden in my heart that I may not sin against thee. Right? Right? I, I want to read your word more than anything else, so much so that it consumes every part of my life in that everything that comes out my mouth just uh, mimics your word. Oh, David was heavenly minded. And every time he was earthly minded is usually when he was up to no good. <laughs> Same thing goes for us. And you know, the whole thing right here and how, we, how this shapes us and how we view this and how it uh, uh, helps us treat others, it doesn't end there. Verse 8 reveals that the grace that propels us into life change also pushes us into new heights of purity and holiness. It does this by changing our attitude. And when we see it, uh, uh, in how we now view life with eternity in mind and as a witness to the power of grace. It does this by changing our temperament, right? We see this in how we treat others now and, now, and how we have a correct view of ourselves, right? How, how, if, have, if, if you have a correct view of yourself, it will change the way you treat others, right? It does this by changing the way we talk. We stay away from malice and slander, we're not a people of gossip, right, and bad language. I, mean, I know a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ that struggle there, right? And they'll, they'll soak up all the grace they can, but eventually that's going to have to stop. Now, I'm not the guy here to beat you with a whip for that. I've come to learn that you, if you'll just continue to walk with Jesus, and if I can encourage you to continue to walk with Jesus, Jesus will eventually take those words from your mouth. It'll help when you quit watching some of that stuff and listening to some of that stuff. It will. But don't think it's a, like, I want to make sure that you understand God's grace is big. It's like anything else. When I first started Christianity, I struggled with drinking still. I struggled with uh, drugs still. And there were years that went by that I served Christ and still did those things until God finally said, I'm taking these things. Right, And then he begins to take these things. And then God started saying, like, I don't want you listening to this, and I don't want you watching this, and I don't want you doing this. Like, and, and, but it wasn't like, a, like we view the religious pastor. Don't do that to Jesus. Jesus was, Jesus was more like my brother-in-law when I stopped drinking, just says, you think you need that anymore? No. And I just never went back and got another. It was more like that. 
It's never like, well, you're bad if you don't stop this. Like, right? It's not the old Pentecostal preacher from old, right? Where if you dress a certain way or look a certain way, it's going to be all bad. It's not like gloom and doom. God doesn't do that. God is a friend. God says, man, what you doing do you want? Do you want more of me? In this moment right now, he'll he'll totally capitalize on a movement. You know? You know that moment where like something's late and you got a bill due or something bad is happening. Maybe somebody's dying in the family and you're like, God, I promise I will do this right if you will just say yes to this one prayer, right? God will be like, okay, I'm totally going to capitalize on this. Like, I'm going to do it. I, I've told you the story about uh, the one time where I was like, okay, God, I'm never going to smoke uh, weed again. And, and I had this bill due. I'm taking care of my young wife. I've got a ginormous rent bill of $500 due. Yeah, that's a good one for adults, right? We're like, ha ha, that's, that's crazy, <laughs> right? But it seems so much in 1996. <laughs> and, and, and so we were like, wow, okay, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And I felt like such less of a man. And I remember crying, Lord, I don't know, I don't have a, my, my record's broke. I don't have a way to make the money. And I don't know how this is going to happen. And, and man, God, if you, I'm just saying, I will do, I will get right by you if you will just help me here look like a man before my wife, right? And it's as if God goes, oh, that's it. I got him. <laughs> and literally, my brother-in-law gets in, the car comes down. We don't know what this car is. It's coming past us. And my brother was like, I know who that is, I think. Let's turn around and go. And it was the AAA guy coming to give us bonus checks. And before I'd even pray, this guy had been driving for three hours to hand me a check that was easily going to cover the rent. I didn't smoke anything after that. I, I was like, man, God's for real. God is for real. Turned to 180. God used that moment to transform my life. It became a catalyst, right? God used shame. Oh, some of us think that's so bad sometimes. God used holy shame. He knew that I was serious, and he capitalized on that. And he said, all right, I'll do this for you. And he did it. And I got to look like a man in front of my wife. And you know what else I got to be? A godly one. Mm. It, I, I mean, how undeserving was I of that? Right? Why do you think I am the way I am? Look at that scene. The drug addict is pleading before the Lord for the Lord. And what does he owe me? Nothing. Nothing. Look how I'm behaving. I'm in church, but I'm still acting like I'm not in church. And yet he still answered my prayer. And he used shame that I would feel as a man totally to catalyst my life to what it would become. Man, I find God uses whatever he wants to use. I think that he and Malcolm X, man, they had that whole thing. By any means necessary, I'm going to save you. Like he had that philosophy going on. And God used that as a situation. Listen, all, all, all of this we're changed, right? I was once like this, but I'm no longer like this. I didn't lose. Listen, I was still struggling with my tongue a little bit back then. It would take a few years to go by for that to change, especially when you work with so many people that struggle with their tongue, right? So we let go of those things. He, he went on to say in verse 8, we let go of lying, which, by the way, is just a way to build ourselves up. It's a form of pride, right? We don't want people to, we lie because we don't want them to be hurt, right? As if to say that we're the catalyst of why they're always sad. Listen, the truth is the truth, right? We, we, we don't lie. Christians don't lie. They're not supposed to. And when we do, people don't think we're Christians. By the way, when we cuss and we have bad language, just like it says, people don't think we're Christians, right? When we gossip, people don't think we're Christians. 
right? The biggest deterrent of Christianity today is Christians. Christians that don't act like Christians. Everybody knows that. You know, I always try to, like, the biggest thing I always hear as a pastor is there's just so many hypocrites in the church, and there's just no denying that. So, like, I always just embrace it and say, well, where else can they go and be loved? Right? Because they're not going to be loved out there because they're all hypocrites. All right? Nobody wants a hypocrite for a friend. But Jesus says, I'll take them. I'll take you, and hopefully I can take you as a hypocrite and make you not a hypocrite anymore, right? And then you'll be my testimony is what Jesus says. You'll be the thing that I parade out the front and get people to come in because you'll be able to say, I was once a hypocrite. I like to talk like I lived one way, but I was really another. But now that I am honest about it and I'm living out in the open, I feel the freedom that God's given me, right? And then all of a sudden your story's like Noah, right? You've been transformed through grace. Where else can they go? Where else can the liar go? Where else can the gossiper go? But here, here's where they're accepted. All of this presses us into the mold of Jesus. And verse 10 reveals that this is, this is the beginning or the start of the transformation that, that, that began the moment you receive salvation through grace. It is in this that we're all created equal. Amen? We are being transformed, all of us, into the image of Christ before all the world. And in doing so, we now walk in Him and He in us. This not only is life-changing for us, but it's also life-changing for the world. And as we become the catalyst for change everywhere, listen, by simply allowing grace to overcome us, change us, and transform us, we are now the moment movement that has begun in Acts and is still carrying out the globe today. That's it. This is where we line up with the apostles. God has changed us through grace because we recognize the second chance God's given us and we're overwhelmed emotionally and physically by that opportunity of a second chance. We go, yes, I'm going to change. But we all know it's not easy and not hard. It's a life spent. It's a life's work. That's why there should always be grace in the church. None of us are ever going to be at the same spot. But it's not about being at the same spot. It's about finishing together. Man, I saw a movie, I think I mentioned it last time I was in here, it was called The Dawn Wall. And in The Dawn Wall was this man named Tommy. Some of you remember this story. Uh, Tommy, uh, uh, his whole, going through a lot of issues in his life, and, and, and one of the things that he was trying to distract himself from is his life, and so he decides he's going to tackle El Capitan in Yosemite. El Capitan is the giant well-known hill in the middle of Yosemite, and there are many different ways to climb it, but the only place that nobody's ever climbed it is on the Dawn Wall side, which is the part where the sun hits it first because it's like sheer flat, right? And so Tommy has decided he is going to do this. This is going to take away. He's going to just like focus on this so he doesn't have to think about his life or anything like that. Cool thing is he grabs this other guy who really has never climbed farther than 30 or 40 feet, and he decides, hey, this guy's like, say, I'll go with you. And so he's like, yeah, come on. This guy named Kevin, and he brings Kevin along, and they're climbing up, and, and they do it in sections so that when they finish the section together, they'll move the tent uh, that literally live on the wall, and then they'll climb a different section. Now, if they fall off during a section, they have to go back to the beginning of that section and start over, and little bit by little bit, they climb it all the way to the top. Now, they get to this one spot where it's almost impossible, and Tommy, who is the best in the world, all right, he can't get through this spot, and he's over and over, and days go by, and eventually Tommy does it. And they're like, oh my gosh, he did it. It's, it's wide open now, and he just, he can kill it. But here's the problem. Kevin can't get it. And Kevin knows this is Tommy's dream. So Kevin does what we think a friend should do. He goes, go ahead, Tommy. And 
Now, I'm not going to stop you from your dream. I just was tagging along. And so Tommy's like, okay. And he begins to just kill it. He's just climbing and climbing. And he finally gets to this one place. They called it the wine cellar, I think, place, where it's just this, it's literally a, a place like this, this much of a ledge off the side. And for the first time, he could stand straight up without having to climb something. So it's like a very monumental spot on the wall where things are easier from this point on. And he looks down and he sees Kevin trying. And he, Kevin can't get it. And he has to wait two or three days because his fingers are so bloody from trying. And they have to let him heal. So their knee is sporing in it. And they're chunking rolls of tape around it, trying to get his fingers good. And Kevin's looking down. And he goes, man, I wanted to celebrate. But how could I? Here's a guy that had helped me the whole way there. And then when the first chance, because I'm better, I'm more experienced at this, that I just take off. And he goes down and he says, nope, Kevin, we do it together or not at all. And he waits for Kevin. And then he becomes his cheerleader. He goes out there on the ropes and he begins to go right here, your hand over here. And he begins to cheerlead Kevin until Kevin does it. And they both climb the wall together and they finish. That's Christianity. That's family. That is how we work here. This isn't, well, Pastor Jim can keep doing this or that or whatever. No, 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 no. We go as fast as the slowest person here. Everybody makes it. There's, I know some of us are so good at Christianity. We're so good. We've been doing this for years. We're good at studying our Bibles. We're good at praying. We're good at doing the work. We're good at all these things. And listen, there's some people that aren't. They haven't for whatever reason, felt that call or felt that push or felt that nudge. And they're just not. Our job is not to sit there and ridicule. Kevin is never going to be as good as Tommy. Tommy was made for this stuff. But Tommy's not down there going, man, if you're as good as me. <clears throat> and he's also not leaving him either. You know what he's doing? He's cheerleading him. Can Tommy just finish it? Absolutely he can. He can totally go all the way. But that's not the point. We're as fast as the slowest person. We all make it. We all make it. We all make it. That's the point of the church. Jesus went after what? The weak. He went after the poor, the sick, all the people that nobody had time for. Where was he at? He's saving the crazy guy at the outside of town that nobody would dare bother him putting clothes on. Nobody brought that guy. Now they just wanted him in the far side of town. That's just the town crazy. Sad thing is he wasn't the town outreach. But to Jesus, he was. Jesus saw him. Jesus takes those who are weak. By the way, if you're here today and Jesus is coming to your life, you're not the strong. You're the weak. Jesus is what makes you strong. Get your priority right there. You're not the strong. That's the whole point of you being here. You recognize I'm not. Christ in me is my strength. Right? I'm able to be here today. I'm able to long for Christ. Why? Because he's placed something within my heart. He's told me, he's, he's called me, something within my heart has pushed me and pressed me here. I'm being molded into the likeness of him, which means what? It means I wait for the poor, I wait for the sick, I wait for the widow, I wait for the orphan. He is in us. And that, that same thing that happened in Acts is in us now. And it's the same movement we're carrying on today. This is what Paul is leading up to in his letter to the Colossians. How the internal actions of grace within us not only change us personally, but also create a community of transformation. And in this community, we find joy and peace and hope. Colossians 3 verse 12. <coughs> 
since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourself with tender-hearted mercy and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults. Forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourself with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Let the message about Christ and all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So Paul goes from listen, this catalyst of salvation should present a change or a transformation of you. This change or transformation of you, because God's done it to more than one person, creates a community of transformation, a community of the changed, a community of the transformed, right? God's chosen people, the ones that have allowed themselves to be transformed, will continue to grow in Christ, in love, in compassion, in gentleness, humility, kindness, mercy, patience. This is a photographic view of what is expected in the church of the redeemed. When people walk in a church, that's what they're looking for. Will I find joy there? Will I find peace there, right? Will I find humility? Am I going to find kindness there? Am I going to see patience being exercised there, right? Oh, no, they're, they're mad at me because I'm not where I should be. Uh, or they're angry with me because I'm maybe uh, struggling in my life and I'm still going through parts of my life where I'm slipping and falling down and then I can't pick myself up. Church is super guilty of all that. Like, unless you come all the time, every day, be a part of everything, how saved are you really? And we have that mentality. And that's just not the truth. The truth is, some of us are Tommies. And some of us are Kevins. And the Tommies are supposed to help the Kevins, not judge them. <laughs> that's the way it's supposed to be. You who God has blessed you with strength beyond measure are supposed to help those who don't have it. And give grace and kindness and patience. Because God is giving that to them. God is giving that to them. Like, <laughs> let's... Let's just be honest on that thing. That's not easy, what I'm saying, but that's the truth. This is the view of the church. The transformed life life not only is shocking to those outside the church and seeing the drastic change that, that you've undergone, but it's also edifying to the church. We're to conduct ourselves in a way that allows us to bear one another's burdens, right? We're to forgive one another, right? This comes from a correct view of your own heart in knowing that you need forgiveness. Amen? Right? We're to love one another. This isn't our definition of love. This is, excuse me, this is Paul's. You remember Paul's definition of love in 1 Corinthians? He says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels but didn't love others, I'd just be a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. He said, if I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge... And if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I'd be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I wouldn't have gained anything. Love is patient and kind, right? You know what he's saying? Even if I'm a pro at Christianity, if I don't possess love, then I haven't mastered anything. I can know all the Bible. I can do all the work in the church. But if, if I don't have love, 
then I haven't mastered anything. What is his definition of love? He says this, love is patient and kind. So if I'm not patient with people, and if I'm not very kind because of my impatient with people, then I haven't mastered love. And it doesn't matter how much I know about the Bible because I know zero about love, right? He says love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Tommy does not going, hey, man, look where I got, right? No, no, no. I'm just cheering on where you're at. It's not about that fact I can do that. That's neither here nor there. God has paired us together. God has paired the strong with the weak together. That's how the church is. When the, the strong are supposed to help the weak, that is how it's supposed to be, right? Uh, love is not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. Mm. Ladies. Oh, men struggle with this too, but women struggle a lot with this. Uh-huh. It'll come up in an argument. I, 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 if you're married, you already know. You already know. Like your wife will bring up a story from like five years ago, something you did. Like, I, I said I was sorry then. <laughs> oh, no, guys laughed at that. Good job, guys. Way to hide it. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Mm-hmm. It, love never gives up. Let me say that again. Love never gives up. Love never gives up. It never loses faith. Ever. I'm going to tell you right now. This church could come and go and be gone, but the kingdom of God will last forever. It will never stop me from living what Christ has called me to live. It will never, right? These are all seasons. These times that we get to come together and be a body, those things are seasons. Churches have seasons. Churches die. You know what? But the church never dies. All the churches, all the buildings we see. Go to Scotland. You know what those churches are? Those old, beautiful, window-pane churches are now, stained-glass windows? Bars and clubs. That's what they are. Majority of them are. You know why? Because buildings die. Congregations perish. But the word of God still lives there. It just lives in a different place. In homes and in other buildings and in other places. You can't kill the church. Because it's not a building. It's not an organization. It's a people. It's a people. And as long as there will be people... Man, when the 501C finally goes away, because it will, and all these churches who built up their whole thing off paying no taxes get stuck with that bill. And then all those denominations come falling down. You know what? There's still going to be a church. It ain't going to matter. There's still going to be the church of Jesus. We'll probably flourish. It'll probably cause a revival. <laughs> That's the irony of it all, right? The Bible's clear. It's pretty clear, man. This is what we are called to do. It, love never loses faith. It's always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. These are the attributes that will ultimately unite us. These are the attributes that keep us in unity. How do we know? Look back at verse 16. Let the message about Christ and all this richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God and with thankful hearts. If that isn't church or the definition of church, I don't know what is. So what is he saying to do? Read the word, study the word, grow in the richness of the wisdom of the Bible. And then he says, you should probably also sing some songs. Makes you feel good, right? To sing songs about the faith and the hope and the glory of the Lord, right? Makes us feel good. Those are good things to do. Read your Bible, study your word, sing songs, praise God, get your heart moving, 
right? Because your heart's like a lot of other things in your life, right? Uh, a pretty good chance that if you're not doing any of those things, you have obesity going on right in here, man, where you're just sitting here sucking everything in, right? That's why you need a little praise and worship to get your feet moving underneath you, right? Get your heart pumping, right? So you can praise and worship God. The Bible's pretty clear here that the doing of these things will keep us in unity as well as living in joy and peace with those around us. Now, I know this isn't easy, and there's a lot of humanity involved, and when humanity is involved, it becomes difficult and hard. I also recognize that there's like this war within us all the time between the flesh and the spirit, and they're constantly clashing. Uh, this is why we're all, there's always going to be issues within the church, outside of the church. They're always there. That doesn't make any of this or this message wrong, though. Paul's message here is a roadmap to maturity, to maturity. Mature Christians won't struggle in these things as much. Why? Because they are going to put these things into their life as practice. Christianity is one thing, if anything, it's resilience. It's resilience. It's the action of a continual pursuit in the life of Christ. It means that when we fail, we try again. That's what it is. People ask me if they've asked me if anything, it's that simple. Listen, you just keep trying. And with the hope that one day Christ will change us from the inside out. Like, if you fall, no problem. Get back up. Quit crying about it. That's not going to do you any good. You can cry for a little while. Give you a little space. Ball your eyes out. And then get back up. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. That is Christianity in a nutshell. Christ will eventually change that within us. Sometimes this is done on such a microscopic level, and many of us will really never see it until years go by. I can tell you that there are things that have significantly changed in my life that I didn't ever realize until somebody asked me. When did you stop cussing? I don't know. You know what's weird? I, I, one of the weird things about it, I don't know the date I got saved. I, I just can't remember a time where I wasn't now. I'm just being honest. I don't have that like date. I didn't mark it in my Bible. Nobody told me to. Um, I remember saying the words. I don't remember the date or the year. It has to be close to early 90s. Um, but I, I remember being filled with the Holy Spirit, and that was way more of a memory than saying the words, please, Jesus, come into my heart. <laughs> That's what I remember. God touching me with the Holy Spirit and going, I, I definitely know he's real now. Some things are done microscopically, and you won't see it until it's already passed. Thus, our need to focus on things that are heavenly rather than things that are earthly. Our hope isn't in what we see here, but rather in what we can see in the Spirit. This morning, I want to take some time a little bit to pray for a few things. <clears throat> we'll, we'll handle worship, uh, but I do want to take some time to pray for a few things uh, before we step into worship, and then we'll end with communion today. I want to specifically pray for you a few areas that, we, that I want us to focus on. Uh, I, uh, just, just focus on for prayer. This, this place, one of the things that we do agree on here, uh, there's a lot of churches that, that um, you'll see their themes on the wall. Uh, um, you know, like this, this year our theme is this, and that's what they're doing for this year. Listen, our theme is going to be the one theme all the time. I want to make this place the house of prayer. When people say Mosaic Community Church, oh, yeah, the house of prayer, that's what that place is because that's pretty much all they do. Uh, thank you greatest compliment ever right i'm going to push and press us till we get there right i know nobody likes to come to the prayer meetings because uh, it can be slow and long and sometimes you never know what to say and sometimes you feel it and sometimes you don't you ever gone to that kind of service where you're like i'm all in this service is the service where jesus is hopping inside my heart then you come like the next weekend it's like i can't feel jesus i'm dead inside right like listen i know the prayer service can be like that 
And I don't mean like it's because of the person. I just know that's how we are. We're temperamental, right? We're emotional. Well, I don't emotionally feel it. Well, sometimes you need to move past your emotions because your emotions lie to you sometimes. Your emotions lie to you. <clears throat> let, your, let your kid's cell phone be off while they're out of town and watch your emotions lie to you. They could be dead. Man, they're not dead. <laughs> Their phone's just turned off. Right? It's funny how our emotions get there. I got kids like that. I'm, I mean, that's just how it is. Like, well, I haven't talked to him in a couple of days. Maybe something's happened to him. No, nothing's happened to him. No, no, they just can't be reached right now. It'll pop on. You'll be like, feel like an idiot. You know? No, that's just how we are. Right? Number one is this. Please pray for me. We're we're uh, we're navigating some areas that need better leadership. Maybe even better than me. And so God is stretching me here. God is stretching me here. Right? I need Jesus to help me in some areas, and I need the mind of Christ to make right decisions always, right? And can I tell you, I don't think Jesus is ever going to leave me in a place where like, here you go, I put you in the most comfortablest place where you're totally gifted and equipped. No, he's never going to grow me that way. He's always going to go, here's the fire, let's see how good you go. You know, I feel like, what did uh, George Strait say? The chicken that's on the burning plate? You know, they used to go down to the circus and watch the chicken on the burning plate. They're like, come see the dancing chicken. No, they just turned up the heat is all they did on that burning plate. That old chicken would dance. Uh, I feel like that sometimes with God. God's like, oh, this is going to be funny. You know, like, okay, I'm glad I am your humor, God. Right? Please pray for my family. Ministry is difficult, uh, but as my house is changing, uh, my kids are growing up. We're just about to have Reese, uh, which makes me think we're going to be rich. We just got one kid now. It's going to be awesome. Uh, It's definitely changed the rhythm of our life. And so uh, we miss our kids not being in our home. Maybe the other one end up with Jared in his home, too. I don't know. <laughs> Jared can't get rid of kids. <laughs> and I've just given them all to him, so. I <laughs> uh, can't imagine greater people to handle, too, though. It's pretty good. Please pray for a greater draw to prayer and devotion for all of us individually. All right? Um, I truly believe the difference in this world right now. I don't know about you, but my, I'm so sick and tired of seeing the gay pride stuff on my Facebook or any of the other left-wing pro-abortion stuff. I mean, it's like all that Facebook wants to talk about right now to me or try to advertise me is how homosexuality is okay, transgender is okay, and killing babies are okay. Like, like what a pride month this is. What a pride month this is. And, and as we are in this world... Remember why we started. And, and, and I maybe, I've been really bad. Maybe I'm not reminding us of this. But let's remember why this started. Why we do things maybe a little different. Why we don't advertise as much. Why, why, we, why we follow after this Matthew uh, 6 thing. And why we do some things different. Because look at the world. Man, now if you bubble yourself in the church culture. And you can see Jesus culture, and you can see Bethel, and you can see Hill songs, and you can live the happy la-la life as if they're winning the, the culture over. But you and I know the church is dying. Matter of fact, Christianity statistically is dying. The Barna group has been saying it for a while. Pastors are leaving by the flocks. Churches are growing now more because of transplant growth than they are newborn growth, which has been said for a while now. That's why the church is dying. So wait a minute, we see these big churches, they're, getting, they're so big, yeah, because there's fewer small churches, right? But I'm going to tell you, I mean, here's the thing, something has to change, right? The things that we're doing, they're not bad things, okay? Don't, let's not confuse that. 
what, what, the, where the church is today, it's not, it's not like in a bad place, but it's not gaining ground. So a different strategy must be formulated. So what do you do? And I'm just going to share with you my, like, my view of this, right? Okay? And, let, and, and you, you judge me on how I'm thinking about this. I'm looking at all the things we do, and then I'm looking at the Bible. Because at the end of the day, how far you skew from what is true north? Like, if you've ever done any engineering, and you've got to cut a piece from, you know, a 10-foot piece, right? And you start out on the line, but you move a hair off within a foot. When you get to the 10-foot mark, it's probably like a half inch, and you're going to have to need a whole new piece. Now, you never notice it at first because it was right on the line. It started out right, and then it's just so close, I didn't even see it because it was so close, like a hair, right? But by the time I got six feet down, I just realized, oh, I cut this thing too short on one side because I wasn't paying attention to the line. It seemed like everything was good. I know I got lost in the work. I got lost in the work, and I wasn't paying attention to where my guideline was. And so I look at the church today, and I see all the things doing. It's the best worship I've ever seen in the 20 years I've been saved. Some of the best preaching I've ever seen in the 20 years I've been saved. But we're so far from revival, it's unreal. We're so far from reaching our culture. Think about what's happened in the last 20 years. As good as we can make church now. It's a full-blown-out concert now. These pastors are like rock stars now. They come out, man. They're practically doing backflips right onto the stage. Yeah, they hold a conference and everybody comes and buys their books. They're millionaires today. Millionaires. And they're saying great stuff. I'm not taking away anything they say. It's great stuff. I, I listen to some of these guys. They're really good. But at the end of the day, I keep seeing our culture sinking and sinking and sinking. And I don't know about you, but after a while, you start to look and go, are we, if we keep doing the same thing, is that going to make a change? I mean, just think, just judge with your own life. When you keep doing the same thing and you don't see different results, do you keep doing the same thing? Why? Because that's dumb. You teach your kid better than that. Like, why do you keep doing it? I don't know. That's dumb. Quit doing that. Right? But it's funny in the church, we don't do that. We just go, well, you know what we do? Which is so, I don't, and again, maybe this is my heart, but we go, well, that's just the way it is. Or we go, well, in the end, it's supposed to get bad anyway. Good job. That's so hopeful. Like, I'm, I don't want you teaching my kid because you're like, well, he, he's going to turn out bad anyway. No, I need people who have hope. I want people who are leading that believe that this world can change if Jesus will just get a hold of it. But I also need somebody that actually sees that if I keep doing the same thing and I keep getting these results in our culture and in our nation, that something has to shift and change. Mosaic started with this idea of this, that intimacy with Jesus, becoming the image. What we're talking about today, the catalyst of transformation is meeting Jesus. He's the catalyst. Everything changes for your life when you meet Jesus. And if people do not meet Jesus, then that does, change does not happen. I don't care how great they are at small groups or at worship or at preaching. If people aren't meeting Jesus outside your building, it doesn't matter. The irony is in the book of Acts, they had no big churches. All they had was their homes. And the reason we have big churches today is because people in their homes had church. It's so backwards. Nowadays, big church has to have church in their home so they can stay big church. Because you can't stay big church unless you have church in your home. 
I had a pastor the other day that belongs to a big church. Uh, my friend, one of my friends, I'm not saying that. Uh, one of my friends, and he was like, he goes, the hard part I'm coming to groups with, he goes, I'm like, I'm a pastor. I go, I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, I'm a small group leader. And he goes, it's dawned on me in our big church of like 3,000 now that the only way we can stay this way is if we have these small groups because people leave if they don't feel connected, and they don't feel connected when there's 3,000 people. How connected do you feel when you went to a concert as a kid? Were you, I went to a Motley Crue concert, didn't feel connected at all. <laughs> Pretty sure I worshiped the devil and God's forgiven me. So, <laughs> But I didn't feel connected. I felt like I was like a tiny little stranger amongst all the other strangers, right? But when we connect in small groups, when we have a group like this, Right? Small setting family. We know each other. We're talking to each other personally, intimately. Right? We could say truthful things. Maybe things we might not say otherwise because we're so close. That's where change takes place, right? And then people want that. They want that. They see that. Right? That's what started the church. Everybody wanted to be a part of what Jesus was doing in the beginning because that's what they saw. They saw this intimate group of believers that were doing crazy things. What do you mean they're giving up all their money to do stuff for the poor? What do you mean they're giving up their... Their, their income. What do, you, what do you mean that they're living in such a way that they believe like they're going to heaven tomorrow? And that radicalness spawned off something that changed everything. It's funny how the home church created the big church, and now the big church needs the home church. But, and here's the point of home church. It's not a matter about where you have church. The point is this. Home church was only great because it created intimacy. A place where people could be intimate with one another, be friends and family with one another. When Peter's being prayed for and he shows up at the front door, he shows up at the front door of somebody's house. Church is where the believers gathered, not the name of the building. Church is where the people gather who believe in Jesus. And that will always happen, even when Mosaic is long gone, even when the Baptist, first Baptist, second Baptist, third Baptist, first Methodist, second Methodist, third Methodist, all the first and seconds, when they're all gone, all the non-denoms are gone. All the Pentecost, all that church will still be taking place. It'll be in the homes of people again. I don't know what's supposed to happen. I just know this. There has to be a search for change. So we're always going to be changing things here. Because we are in constant search of where the next revival will be. And hopefully it's here, right? Because if it's here, it'll go out, right? But I only think the only way that can happen by drawing in close to Jesus. The Welsh revival was started because a young man in college prayed. And as he began to pray, God began to put a fire in him. And he prayed in the college building, so he went up there and he would pray. And then a little brother and sister decide, if you've read the book, you already know this, but a little brother and sister decided, you know what, we're going to join him. And so they went up there and they joined him. Now there's three of them, right? And they're all praying on their little college campus because they're all 20s and, man, they're on fire for Jesus. They, nobody's told them apparently that that's not how stuff starts or nobody's told them apparently that they had to have a license to preach or anything like that or they needed some kind of qualifications to start revivals the only qualification he had was like i feel like god's called me to pray i'm going to go up here to this room and pray these other people see him go that's a good idea we want to pray with him so they begin to pray with him and what started out as one became three three became four four became five and it didn't, it didn't happen overnight it wasn't like instantaneously no they just kept praying and praying until God did something in that city that changed the city. And when revival came, it didn't come to one denomination. It came to every denomination. Every church in town filled up with revival, which means God had to stack men of God in those churches that could handle that, right, and put them all like-minded, make them work together. That's a hard thing. That's like a miracle, all right? 
Second, revival of Susa didn't start because the pen, all of a sudden the AG gets a fire in them. Hey, we should probably have revival. Let's start out by praying. No, the AG wasn't even born yet. AG loves to claim it was born out of a Susa. Maybe it was. <clears throat> the irony of where it started out is a Susa started out, if you don't know the story, it started out with this young man who decides he's going to pray. And at first he's praying like in a shack kind of thing near a Susa. And he starts by praying in it. And as he's praying in it, he's sitting there and he's just praying by himself. And it's really all he wants to do. He doesn't really want to have revival. He's not thinking about revival. He's just thinking about praying. And then all of a sudden he decides, uh, uh, okay, a couple people like, same thing. I'm going to join him. And you know what's ironic, the, the ironic part of all this? He didn't like that. He just wanted to pray by himself. That's what he was there to do. You'll hear the stories about it if you ever get to, get to read it. It's really funny. After about 10 or 15 people get there, you know how loud a prayer meeting can get when you got that many people in the room? You know, everybody's praying. You know what I'm saying? You can hear the noise and stuff. He got to a point where he put a shoebox over his head. You ever just go, I'm like so sick of these people praying. So ironic. It's so hilarious. And he puts this shoebox over his head, right? They end up, because it's getting bigger, they move it into this house off of Sousa Street. And it's so big at this point now, it's filled up the house full of people who are praying, and people are on the outside praying. And then the Holy Spirit comes, and it falls. And an interesting thing happens. This is how the AG was born, if you didn't know this. An interesting thing happens. People from here in the South begin to hear that the Holy Spirit has fallen in Azusa Street in California. You know how the South is. We're like, nothing good can come from California. <laughs> but we got to go check this thing out. And so they go over to California, and they show up, and they're like, I'm not laying, there's these laying of hands that are happening. And these guys are like, I'm not letting them lay hands on me. And you know why? Because whites don't let blacks touch them. You see, Azusa was full of black people. And God had bring revival to a culture that was supposed to be subhuman. Funny how God works against us so hard. Right? Just, to, just to, I'm about to show you. I'm going to come to the least of these. Right? And he brings it to that community. And finally, a guy's like, I can't handle it anymore. Like, I'm just going to let it happen because I just got to know. I got to know if this is real. I got to know. I got to know. And he goes up there. Oh, he gets hit with the Holy Spirit, starts speaking in tongues, and he gets fired immediately as soon as he goes back to his Baptist church. <laughs> and so these guys have to start up their own ministry. Some of them just convert their whole Baptist church. Baptist, not too happy about that. <laughs> It's true. You want to know what started the AG? Baptists and Methodist ministers. Mm, they got filled with the Holy Ghost. Went out to Azusa. Those blacks, people laid hands on them. And their life changed forever. They met Jesus in a way that few had met him. And not too long after that, that movement began to plant churches. And churches started popping up everywhere in these revivals. And what started in Azusa through one man praying, and he'd literally getting irritated and putting the shoebox on him, would take it out from California and spread across the south and the north. Literally, there's a woman back in the 40s that when she was a part of this, we got filled with the Holy Ghost. She planted by herself like over 50 churches. A woman in the 50s planted 50 churches. Did you hear what I just said? That's crazy stuff, right? I thought they were supposed to be not equal back then. I mean, I don't know about you, but it's just even now, like the AG still has a hard time with women pastoring. But a one in the 40s and 50s could plant 50 churches because of revival. It's funny how God just like breaks our rules. You know, I've often said, you know, what I think revival is going to come today. Some of you already know this. The homosexual community. 
It's prime. It's the one place we don't want to go. We don't want to go. We hate the whole idea of it. Sexual immorality, sexual lust. But we're sin abounds. What abounds much more? What, what community should we be praying for more than any other community? Because what would so radically shift the world if all of a sudden, through the homosexual community, a drive of Jesus just starts to make a stake in the ground? What's more powerful than that testimony? I came out of the homosexual community, and now God's called me back in it to save people. Dude, I'm going to tell you right now, we'd start dancing in here. We'd be like, oh, man, you want to talk about some holy rolling stuff? We'd get all kinds of holy roller up in here. This is why we search for intimacy with Christ. We want to be so connected. We want to be such the house of prayer that we hear where God's calling us to go and do what God's calling us to do. Because listen, our desire is not to that like, you know, God, you're going to end it anyway. I just hope to make it. No, no, no. Our desire is for that the heart of God be manifest upon the earth, which is what? that I des- He says, I desire that none should perish and that all should know. Right? God is not coming until everybody knows. So guess what? Get your mouth ready. And your mouth ain't going to be ready until your heart's ready. And your heart's ready is not going to be ready until you pray. God's called us to a whole other level of intimacy. And that's one of the things we have to be in prayer about. <clears throat> Which leads to the next one. Let's pray for those that aren't here this morning. For whatever reason, that God would clear their schedule or they did create a new spark within them that would drive them back into fellowship. And listen, that's not just for this church. That's every church in this town. Because every church has members who feel the defeat of life. Where life overtakes them. Where they're tired. They're hungry for stuff, but they can't make themselves. They're lost in a rut. Everybody's been there at one point in time. Where you're just sick. I'm just tired. I just want something different. I, my, I'm, just, I'm just sick of the mundane. Or I'm sick of whatever. My life is stuck in this rut and I can't get it out. Everybody goes through that. We all know people like that, right? Finally, let's pray for this building and that God would grant us some favor in expedience, right? And for the craftsmanship, we want quality, but we don't want that sacrifice for the sake of expedience, right? We want what we want. We want it to do well. It doesn't do us any good to decorate that whole thing and not put kids in there. That'd been a waste of money otherwise. The only reason we stayed in here, lest we forget, is so that we could pour out our finances upon the youth and upon children and upon others. We agreed to sacrifice for the sake of others. That's what you're doing. Why are you still in a restaurant? Why are we still doing set up and tear down? Because we care about others more than ourselves. We want to sow seeds into our children, our future. And we want to create a youth group, right? And listen, I'm one of those. You're going to find me. I believe that there's no, nothing in the Bible for children's ministry and youth ministries. They technically are uh, not biblical. Uh, but... They were created because we have plenty of parents now that aren't saved, and we have kids that come and children that would come, uh, and youth that would come uh, that don't have parents that would be saved at all. And if you've been in youth ministry, me, you already know that. I mean, the majority of the kids that we used to get were kids that never had a parent that would show up a day in their life, and that's why youth, there needs to be a youth ministry, and there needs to be a children's ministry. I promise you right now, one of the next things that will probably happen is I'm going to buy a van. Michael, get ready. Because that means carrying children on Sunday morning, bringing them. It means carrying youth on Wednesdays, bringing them. That's how it is. We need it done. We need all this done, and we need it done right. So I'm going to pray real quick, and then we'll get ready for worship. But these are the things I want you to be praying on. I want you to be thinking about every week, because I promise you, I am. Once this building gets up, prayer services are going to begin. Why? Because we're the house of prayer. That's what we're going to go for. 
right? I might even get a neon sign that says House of Prayer right out front, and that's where we're going to pray. We're the 24-hour open for House of Prayer, right? I don't know, but I'm, I'm serious about becoming the House of Prayer in this town. I want to be known as the House of Prayer, not the House of a lot of... No, 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 no. The House of Prayer is what we're known for. We're known for the spiritual, our spiritual intimacy with Jesus Christ. We value communication with God first. That's what God wanted. And my house should be called the house of prayer. And I want, I want to be able to say, make Jesus proud. When he said that, I want to be able to say, that's what we're aiming for, Jesus, just like you told us to. I want to be able to say that. These are the things we're praying for. Let the worship team come up. If you'll stand with us this morning as we get ready to worship. We've committed to the first half of the message where he says, <clears throat> grow in the wisdom of Christ, grow in the wisdom of the word. <clears throat> and then he gets to the part where he says, sing songs and psalms of joy and peace and think on these heavenly things. And so this morning we commit to the second half of this. We've learned the wisdom of the truth of the Bible. We've learned the wisdom of the truth of these things. We have homework, which is to go and pray and seek these things out that they may come to pass. We, we're going to dedicate our life to growing more in intimacy, to continuing the process of transformation in us so that not only it's something that sits in here, but it's also in the world so that his image will be bared, right? It's what drives us in unity, like he said in Colossians. And at the end, he says, this is what is, uh, is good for you. Is if we're a body of believers coming together under this thing, then reading of the word uh, to bring wisdom to us, and then the singing of the psalms and the hymns so that we might have joy and we might have peace.